Welcome to our panel of speakers today, who I will introduce in just a minute. In this podcast, we want to explore how we can transform coasts to be prepared for current and future social and environmental challenges. In my work, I have been talking to people working on coastal management on England's south and east coasts to find out what the challenges and opportunities for adapting to climate change are. In those interviews, I was especially interested in hearing their thoughts on the role and opportunity for transformational adaptation, longer term, larger scale or system change adaptation options. Today, we explore with three experts what transformational adaptation on the coast is, what we can learn from diverse and international examples of transformational adaptation, and what the barriers and opportunities to transformational adaptation are. Our three speakers are here as individuals, representing not their organizations, but speaking from their long-standing experiences, learning and work in the coastal context. First, I would like to introduce myself and Dominique, who will be facilitating today's discussion. I'm Dr. Sien van der Plank. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter and visiting researcher at the University of Southampton. I research the role, resilience and opportunities for individuals, communities and local stakeholders in coastal adaptation to current and future hazards. Joining me from the University of Southampton is Dominique Townsend. Dominique is a coastal geomorphologist currently studying a PhD in nearshore change at the University of Southampton. Secondly, I would like to introduce our three guests on today's podcast. I would like to welcome Dr. Jenny Brown, who works at the National Oceanography Centre. Her research interests are in coastal flood and erosion hazards. I would also like to welcome Professor Mike Elliott, Professor of Estuarine and Coastal Sciences at the University of Hull and Director of IECS Limited, International Estuarine and Coastal Specialists, a research consultancy, specialising in the science and management of estuaries, coasts and marine areas. Finally, I would like to introduce Professor Robert Nichols, Director of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Research at the University of East Anglia, who has long experience on coastal flooding and erosion, including the implications of sea level rise. A warm welcome to all three of you. We're really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on transformational adaptation from your diverse experiences and areas of expertise. I would now like to take a moment to invite you to introduce yourselves, perhaps add a little bit more on how you've ended up in this podcast talking about transformational adaptation, and also perhaps to reflect on what transformational adaptation means to you from your research and disciplinary perspectives. So perhaps working in reverse order, Robert, could I invite you to introduce yourself first? Thank you, Cien. Um, well, I'm Riam, so I'm Robert Nichols. I've really worked on coastal issues for a long, long time. So uh, I've seen quite a bit of change, I suppose, over the years. And I think this notion of transformation is an interesting one. It's a word that's used a lot. And um, I do I do sometimes have trouble with, I think different people mean different things with it. My, my take on coasts and coastal management is we have seen dramatic changes in the UK over the last sort of 50, 60 years um, in how we think about coastal management. And that process is continuing. We've seen a move from really defence to kind of looking at the notion of risk, the issue of climate change coming in and thinking that maybe long-term changes are going to come about. And now this notion of resilience, which I think is used quite a bit, but isn't still worked through and understood as to what that really means. So I think we are, I would sort of take, we are in a, we've experienced transformation and I think we're continuing to experience transformation. So I'll say more in a minute and let the others speak first. 
thank th th thanks Ian. thanks thanks robert for those uh, com comments um greetings everyone um, like robert i guess i've been working for quite a long time now on coast i i used to work for uh, what is now called the environment protection agency in scotland so i guess all my background um has been in what are the problems in estuaries and coasts and marine areas and how do we solve them and particularly what science do we need in order to solve them and we can we can probably dis discuss these these later now one of the things that we've been focusing on is what what we call the triple whammy for coasts the triple whammy no the the three major threats that the coasts are, are facing these are, first of all, uh, increasing us industrialization and increasing urbanization of coasts. Secondly, increased use of resources, that is resources such as either shellfish or water or space. No, we're using these resources. And thirdly, and this touches on, on Robert's last comment, um, the uh, decreased um, resistance and resilience of coast to things like uh, climate change and, and some of these uh, what we might call wider pressures. Now, Robert talked about the resilience, which is uh, classically defined as the ability of, of something to recover. But also at the same time, we, we merge that with resistance. That is, can we resist changes should we resist changes and one of the things that we've been looking looking at and I'll, I'll i'll come back to this is how different societies respond to these things now a, a fairly rich country such as the uk or the us for example will will be able to respond differently say from a developing uh, third world country or country in the global south but, but, but perhaps we can we can touch on that as the conversation goes through. Absolutely. Dominique, make a note of this. <laughs> We've got lots of topics coming up already. Um, Jenny, hi. Would you like to take a moment to reflect on transformation adaptation and how you've come to be in this room today? <laughs> oh, yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So when I was at school, my dream was to always work with the sea. And I've been really lucky and that's what I'm doing. So I haven't been in the field quite as long as the others on the podcast. Um, but I am very lucky. I've worked as a coastal oceanographer. Uh, I enjoy going to the beach. And I think sustainability is the key word that comes up to me uh, that needs to be discussed. Um, when we think about protecting our coasts, we've been very reactive in the past. We always focus on protecting people, infrastructure. But now we're starting to think about the sustainability and how the next generation can continue um, what's being put in place today and how we can go forwards in a positive way um, and don't just put in interventions that actually can then cause problems down the line. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. I think we've set the scene for a great discussion. Dominique, I'm going to hand over to you and I'm just going to sit back, listen and enjoy. <laughs> Super, thank you. Um, and yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, so, yeah, we'd really like to start by having a think about what what transformations do you think have already happened to the coast and then sort of moving on to what what transformations or what transformation or adaptation do we need to move towards? Um, so, Robert, you kind of touched on this. Um, would you like to start off? Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I suppose I would say that, that a, a key transformation, I think I've said them, but maybe I'll re re revisit a little bit. I think the mindset of the in the past was the sea was an enemy. So the notion of defence, I mean, I think that word defence 
um, comes for a reason. It, and it is a sort of military mindset, really, of, uh, of the sea being an enemy, and you fight it with walls or whatever. Um, and so, and, and I think we've touched on this with some of the other remarks too, this move to a more holistic view, to sort of realizing, seeing this as a sort of process, and to see that, um, w- well, what in a way does society want to get out of the coast? Um, so I think there's a, we've moved from defense, I think, to this notion of risk. So um, if you go back to 1953, um, basically after 53, there was a big, huge flood on the East Coast. 300 people died. That led to the Thames barrier being built, but it led to huge amounts of armoring of our coast. And you could build pretty much a defense anywhere you wanted to at that time. If you came up with a defense scheme, you'd probably get money for it. Um, so, and I think government began to realize, is this wise? You know, we're going to end up with a coast that's basically concrete all the way around. And so this notion of risk started coming in. Let's ha- if we're going to spend money, let's at least spend it where there's a, the, the benefits outweigh the costs. And that sort of starts to change your thinking and your priorities. Um, and I think that's really, and that really means that quite a lot of less developed areas now you there's maybe not a, so much of a justification for protecting them in that kind of risk mind risk sort of paradigm and moving forward now we're thinking about resilience really we're in a sense broadening the debate we're bringing in multiple values and it becomes much harder i mean risk often has been assessed with a kind of cost benefit analysis a financial monetary view of the world and you can monetize everything but I, i'm not sure I'm not a great fan of monetizing everything, but um, I think you start to move to maybe more multi-criteria approaches where you want to do multiple things, but then you've got to have a discussion. You have got to have an agreement about what people want and how you value it and what you want to achieve. And I think in this sort of resilience debate, that's really where we are at the moment and we're learning how to do it. And in many ways, we're asking questions. I think we stimulate probably people to think about what they want. So it, it's not it's not just figuring out what we want to do. We actually change how we think about things when we change these frames of of, of reference. Uh, and I think it's quite exciting, really. I'm not sure where we're going to go uh, with this, but I think it's we're on a journey with this. I think I'm going to jump in and follow on from that one. Um, so trying to bring in people's perceptions is a, a real new challenge. Um, communities getting involved with uh, kind of coastal management so we can't keep building infinitely high sea walls um, around our island nation Um, and perceptions are really important public really need to buy into what's going on Um, if you're kind of restoring a sand dune system you don't want people walking everywhere over that system you want them to be using designated pathways Um, so we've really got to get be working with communities uh, so they actually look after schemes that are being put in place or being maintained so that's kind of a new thing how do we get public working with those managing our coasts how do we set up those dialogues how do we get everybody involved but 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 i think i i mean i totally agree with this one of the things we have to remember is so how how did we get here and and what have we done in the past now, um, I, I live about um, seven miles from a fast eroding coast called Holderness, 
um, uh, it's okay. It won't reach me in my lifetime, but it's not too far away. So this is eroding probably two, three meters a year. Now, you have to remember that you know, since the last ice age, this has been eroding and probably in recorded history, we've lost something like 40 villagers, four zero villagers on this coast. And in that in that time, people have just moved back. They've accepted that it's an eroding coast. You can't really do anything about it, and you move the villagers. So we've got a whole set of villagers in this area, and we know that there is the foreigners of those villagers that are now in the sea. Um, and, and they even say you can hear the church bells of one of the villagers on a calm night, but I don't think you can, but there you go. Um, now, people have then moved back. They've, they've, uh, they've accepted that you can't do anything, that, um, that the cost would be too great, so we, we just moved back. When now, and this is Jenny's point about behavior, I think society is now, I mean, how many times have you heard someone saying something must be done? The authorities have to do something. And what they're wanting is, very often, they're wanting hard protection. Now, in this area, we have to try and convince them that, firstly, hard protection is very expensive. But but really, you then say, well, firstly, could you protect the area? And then secondly, should you protect the area? And the should you part refers to the fact that if we start protecting one part of the coast, then we could actually make things worse further down. So it's, as I think Robert mentioned, it's taking this holistic view. We have to regard the coast as, as much wider. Now, we've mentioned uh, this, this term risk, and we, we, we think of risks following something called hazards. Now, a, a hazard can be a, a natural hazard, so erosion in this area is a natural hazard. Um, you know, tsunamis are a natural hazard. But when those hazards make, uh, when they affect something that we value, which is our lives, our livelihoods, our health, uh, and so on, then it becomes a risk. And that's why Robert says we can start valuing those risks in um, in monetary terms. There are many other ways of doing it. So trying to convince people there are these hazards. If we do something to the coast, we can actually turn those hazards into risks. So what what do we do about them? Do we, as we're suggesting, do we convince them to move back? Or in in this area, um, dare I say it, we have newspaper. If we if we try to sort of manipulate the coast in order to you know give better defence natural by natural means, what's called nature based solutions, or to um, allow the sea to flood certain areas, which may be better for a whole, we get newspaper headlines. Dare I say it, things like, um, I I didn't give up this coast to the Germans in the last war. I'm not giving it up to the sea in now sort of thing there. So so we have those those difficulties, which we as scientists, Jenny, Robert, myself as scientists, may know that there are good solutions, but actually trying to get the, 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 um, the rest of the population to agree. Now, um, uh, just just one point, and then because uh, we'll come back to this, it's um, it's transformation. But you say in what way? Now we might get as natural scientists, we might get locked into um, 
the physical and the environmental transformation, but you have to think about the the legal, the economic, the technological, the societal transformation. Um, now we we publish quite often now things called the ten tenets. These are ten things that you have to bear in mind when you um, manage the environment. Of which only one of those is the natural environment. The rest is society. Oh, that's yeah, really interesting. Just sort of jumping back a bit, Mike. Um, it sounds like transformation adaptation isn't quite happening at your coast at the moment, along your stretch anyway. Can anyone give an example of somewhere where actually there has been this change in mindset, not necessarily in the UK, but just sort of internationally, really? Um, is there anywhere where you've sort of seen these sort of changes that you're hoping for? Is this something we really have to push quite hard at in getting? Well, 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 just very quickly, Dominic, and then let the others come in. Uh, I mean, we have got that. We have got many examples of transformation. We've got physical transformation, such as many sites of um, what's called managed realignment or setback. You know, we, we, we push the coast back. But we've also got that societal transformation. We've got where, where um, in, in this area, people are being um, encouraged either you know, by the authorities or by sheer economics to, to, to move back. And, um, and we, see, we see this uh, in, in, in other areas. You know, we have villages around the coast now where people are saying, we won't be able to defend your coast after a while. So there are these examples, but but there are also examples worldwide where we transform the coasts, probably for our benefits more, and less for natural benefits. And of course, the the as Jenny says, sustainability is trying to get the the natural system and the human system working in tandem. I was going to think of the um, you know the, building on Mike's point about. Um, the emotions that are associated with the coast. The very first conference I ever attended was on the Isle of Wight and in Newport. And, and uh, the um, at the end of the conference, a very large gentleman, basically, it was a local authority conference, a very low kind of key, but a, 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 a very large gentleman grabbed the microphone and started rambling on about coastal erosion and, you know, it didn't really make much sense. But what struck me, well, he was very large and nobody was prepared to challenge him. So he rambled on and he started crying because England was falling in the sea. So it brings out the emotions that are involved with this topic. And they're very powerful. Um, and um, so, so I think just, just sort of touching on what Mike was saying, really, that if you think about... The, 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 this pressure to keep things as they are um, and the fact that in a sense erosion is unnatural but when we know from a scientific viewpoint that it is very natural Mike mentioned Yorkshire Norfolk is North Norfolk's another place where it's gone back kilometers the Isle of Wight has gone back kilometers um, over thousands of years um, so I think we have to learn to live with these changes Society, I, I think also we need to recognise that probably our ability to intervene has grown. So te we have more technical measures than we, than we used to have. And it's probably, tr I, 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 I'm against the notion of trying to think of nature taking its course. I think it's about intelligent interventions 
on on the coast and that may be pulling back or maybe you know or, or, but, but um i i think that we will still to protect in some places and it's probably an interesting sort of balance that there of trying to intervene in a sensible manner uh, on the coast um uh, and 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 shape the coast that we want um so uh and in terms of a plate, but in terms of where have we abandoned people, in clifftop places, we have seen lots of individual properties go over. And over time, communities abandoned. Dunwich is maybe one of the more famous ones in Suffolk. But Fairbourne is the only place I can think of where actually we're abandoning a town in a, in a planned way, and that's in West Wales. And that's raising an awful lot of controversy. So uh, I'll let, let, let Jenny speak now anyway. While you were talking, I was actually thinking about um, the way we're changing the boundaries that we work in. Uh, so I was going to comment about Hesket Outmarsh, which is, which is a salt marsh restoration in the Ribble Estuary just north of Liverpool. And I think that's um, a really interesting site because that's a habitat compensation scheme, but it's actually compensating for habitat loss in Morecambe Bay, which is a, a different location. So Morecambe Bay has had... Um, flood prevention schemes put in place to protect the community, um, but they required um, developing habitat compensation and an opportunity arose to have this compensation within the Ribble Estuary. Um, so we've got that salt marsh restoration happening. So that's a nice example where we've had engineering works, um, but we've also restored some habitat. But it's very often very difficult to work um, across boundaries and do something like that because normally a scheme is happening in a, in a single location and we're thinking about what can we do in that location so that's just an example of where something very different has occurred um dominique also said about what what's going on internationally um so i was thinking about mangrove restoration and um, people using mangroves and um, reseeding them to act as buffers against waves. And I know that in Australia, they kind of plant them in front of seawalls because seawalls have a, a finite design life. Um, so if you can have something within the front of that seawall, it can start buffering the wave action and perhaps prolong the life of the coastal scheme. So there are, there are things going on internationally. Um, but I guess as a global challenge, we're thinking about how we can use vegetation and green solutions. And it just depends where we live, um, what those green solutions are. If I, if I just take, take that a bit further, and Jenny, Jenny is, is perfectly right. I mean, after the 2007 tsunami in, the, in Southeast Asia, and we realised then that having removed mangroves and replaced them with you know, um, fish ponds, um, the the area is now much. Not only is it much less resilient, it's much less resilient to it. You know, the tsunami did much greater damage where we'd remove those those mangroves, and now we're having to um, uh, to educate people uh, on on the value of the the value of these. Um, let's, let's call them. Well, we used to call it eco engineering. We now call it nature based solutions, but it's the same thing. So. As as um, as Robert mentioned, thinking about where we can have these nature-based solutions, eco-engineering, but also where we need geoengineering. Now, again, it it depends on uh, it depends on your perspective. In that the the, um, 
Uh, take the Netherlands, for example. Now, if half your country is below the high watermark, that really concentrates the mines. And um, and the fact that, um, no, it, it, I don't know if they still have it. They used to have a, a, a water policy called dry feet in that if you have dry feet, you can worry about the salt marsh and the birds and the seals and everything else. If you don't have dry feet, you're not going to you're not going to worry about those there. And and what this then does is it um, forces it 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 it, it colours their whole um, their whole attitude. Now, R Robert mentioned the 1953 flood, which uh, yes, it, it no, it killed what 300 people on the English coast. Um, but it but it was probably up to about fifteen hundred people on the Belgian and Dutch coasts. Now, this makes us think about societal memory. You see, while people can still remember that, they're probably still willing to um, to build defences. They say we must be defended. Our worry is if you can't remember that, then does that uh, affect the way you think about the coast? But um, uh, say in, in these areas here, um, uh, Sian mentioned about working on the east and the uh, south coasts of, of England, where you know most most of the people live on those coasts, whereas the the, the north and west coasts are, are not that populated. So we have to think about these, um, and also of course building the longer term changes such as. Um, what is called isostatic rebound, the fact that the coasts are naturally changing as well, coupled with sea level rise due to global warming, coupled with erosion and so on. So we need to bring all these things into, into play. Just going to jump in, leading on from sea level rise, could you all just sort of explain for our like, listeners, what, what are the impacts of climate change on our coasts and how is this sort of like uh, affecting how you're thinking about transformative adaptation and what it needs to do. Well, if I go first, then, um, well, I think you know, that but the sea level has a lot of effects on the coast. Just sea level rise, and then, um, be, and, and, and then there are other dimensions of climate change as well. But if we have a rise in sea level, that means that basically flooding kind of self-evidently gets more. more get, Flood levels get higher because if you get the same storms at a higher water level, um, it, this, the, the, the risks are rising, and it also means that coasts that erode erode faster. So I mean, it's, so really, it's promoting the two hazards we've been talking about quite a bit in this in the podcast: um, flooding and erosion. And I think one of the points about sea level rise is um, we expect sea level to keep on rising, even if we even if we implement the paris agreement and stabilize temperature sea level has a, is a very has a lot of inertia and it will keep on rising for hundreds of years so it's this is a problem that we that we are living with but our children our grandchildren and beyond so when you talk about sustainability it raises quite sort of fundamental questions the coast they will have will be different to the coast we have inevitably because because of this big change and i think Back to the, it thinks it makes me think about trajectories really that we need to and I think we are thinking as a society much more about what are the implications of our decisions I think our you know former decisions they just looked at the short-term benefits we're now thinking about the longer-term consequences of what is happening and with these rises in um, sea level that really means for example if we do protect in a traditional way what but more the areas behind get 
that, that, that are flooded get bigger and bigger. And if the defences fail, the consequences of that also get get much, much larger. So we might be able to protect most of the time. But if we get the odd failure, they could that could be very nasty. Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, you know, 1,800 people died when the dikes around New Orleans failed. Um, Mike mentioned the Netherlands and that 1,500 people dying in 1953. So um, I think uh, uh, that's, that, that's one thing that really sort of worries me. And I think this idea of trajectories and really trying to think through pathways, and maybe you can then start thinking about what are the sustainable or the desirable pathways versus the undesirable pathways and have a debate. So I'll pass on to to somebody else now. Well, I I might add to that. um, So my interest is really reducing uncertainty in predictive capability. So as sea levels are rising, that means our water levels are coming higher up existing defences. So uh, if you start lifting your waves slightly higher, then they start going over the top of the defences more frequently. So we need to have good warning systems and predictive capability in place um, so we can forecast what's going to happen and respond in a timely matter. So I'm, I'm very interested in measuring conditions to try and improve predictive tools, reduce uncertainty in them. Um, so this is obviously very important uh, where you've got railway lines near to, to the coast. So I'm sure everyone has experienced speed restrictions when there's been flooding on the line. Maybe it's coastal, maybe it's river, maybe it's surface flooding. Um, but we, we experience that. So we need to know perhaps when weather conditions are going to be impacting us. And we've got a lot of railway line close to the coast. So ensuring that we've got prediction, we can predict in advance means we can plan um, transport connections around that. There's plenty of coastal roads that maybe in the future there'll be times when they're cut off at high tide. So we need good warning systems to know, perhaps to navigate around those roads at certain times during windy winter conditions when the, the roads are flooded temporarily at high tide. Um, so you kind of think of your your sat nav in your car. It tells you when the motorway is congested, and you can reroute. Maybe we need sat navs that um, include flood warnings and erosion hazards, so you can reroute um, during times uh, when it's not safe to be driving in flood water. Yeah, I, I think we, if I had time, we might come back to some of these things. But but sticking with the sea level rise, right, no, the, the these two. Um, dominant aspects of climate change that, that we're worried about in this context. There are many, many others, of course, but, but things like sea level rise and increased storminess and the effect of those on these particular coasts that, that um, we were talking about, especially the, the east and the south coasts of, uh, of England. Um, I mentioned isostatic rebound, and there's still debates about the actual amounts of it, but given the fact that no, uh, these coasts, the eastern and, and southern coasts of England, are um, no still as the result of the last ice age. We're, we're sinking slightly, um, whereas uh, Scotland, Scandinavia are, are, are rising up. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not recommending we all move to Scotland, although I did live there for for, me, for many years. And that. so thinking about relative sea level rise. So if you think, so we've got. An area, particularly of England, which is not only um, affected by sea level rise because of global warming, 
but relative sea level rise because of the land sinking and the fact that it is mostly soft coasts. You know, there's there's a there's there's a the hard bit of coast at Flamborough Head in 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 Yorkshire, and then the the next main bit of hard coast is probably down in 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 Kent. So we've got between that we've got these highly vulnerable low-lying coasts that are getting even even more low-lying. Now, thinking about um, where the problems come from and what we do about them, um, writing a lot uh, about what we call uh, endogenic pressures, that is something that you do in an area, so you have an activity in an area, and the problems from that, you can you can tackle both the causes and the consequences of them. But climate change, we regard that as an exogenic pressure. That is, the causes are outside the area. The causes are global. But the consequences, um, you have to deal with consequences within an area. And this is why we have you no know, coastal modifications, uh, no managed realignment or, um, uh, or or even armoring that, that, that we do. We're, we're... Now, the, the, the UK policy still is that we protect um, large urban areas and we protect industry in the national interest, but we cannot afford to protect all the areas in between. Um, as I said just now, you know, it, it's not sort of can we protect them, but should we protect them? And we're now realising that actually protecting what may be farmland which of course is valuable but but um uh I, you know robert probably has a better figures of what it costs to protect an area I and mean, i think it's probably what uh, 3 million pounds per 100 meters or so um we we can't do that but the other point is, is should we do it and because we now look at the coasts as a system then we're back to what i said before we start stopping erosion in one place and it may exacerbate it in another place. And so it, it, so I think we are thinking in these wider, um, these wider terms, knowing what the problem is, having some solutions, but then as Jenny says, trying to bring the population on board with those solutions. Perhaps that's the most difficult part of this. So we've got this big exogenic problem which we can't ignore um so i really like to understand what what sort of barriers are sort of stopping us from uh getting to this should we should we be defending this bit of case what's the sort of next step in not defending it what's stopping us from sort of reaching that area well if i come in first i think we've talked about it already in the podcast, it's societal pressure. People want things to stay the same as they are today. People don't like change. My experience is probably people, yeah, a lot of people at the coast, it's a 20-year time frame. They don't want change over the next 20 years, but they never want change over the next 20 years. So that it keeps on moving forward. (laughs) So you can talk. um, So I think that societal Societal pressure and the the politics of the of the issue really, um, uh, I think, uh, are very important. Also, I suppose traditionally, when we think about our coast, I mean, in the UK, there's no right to be protected. In in the Netherlands, it's actually you have a right to be protected. So it's a very different structure sort of structure there. So it varies from place to place, and um, 
government, though, does protect people self-evidently, the things like the Thames Barrier, where there's a kind of considered a benefit to society. So um, if you're if a big city, there's lots, there's, you, 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 can, you, you can justify protection. In areas you can't justify protection, nothing is done. It's the landowner's problem. And I think probably we need to maybe as a society start thinking, well, let's manage our whole coast. And how do we, the people in uh, East Anglia, the people in the East Riding of Yorkshire, how can we facilitate them to move back? And that's not just to pay them out with large sums of money, but to think a bit more holistically about all the responses that we take. And maybe how can we facilitate a transition to them moving back uh, and that's that in itself, I think, is a big change in thinking. It's worth noting that there's a big program called the Coastal Transitions Program, which DEFRA are funding right now, which is 20 or 30 million pounds in Yorkshire, in Norfolk, actually beginning to look at this question. So there is actually recognition, I think, in government that this is a problem. I think this has been triggered by the Climate Change Committee um, and then a more recent study by Paul Sayers and others have identified that thousands and thousands of houses potentially will will be will will be abandoned to um, the sea in the coming century if we continue as we are, and so that's going to be a big political problem. And government can no longer say they didn't recognise this problem, so they are and to be given their due, they're doing something about it at least or at least beginning to. So, so anyway, I'll pass on to somebody else now. I, I was thinking um, there needs to be a much better understanding of how kind of the green solutions work. Um, everybody knows if you put in a concrete seawall, there it is operating. Um, but these greener solutions need to establish, they need time to grow. And that often makes people nervous. If you were living behind um, an area where a salt marsh was being grow, grown, um, you'd be concerned that, well, is it really going to growing time, um, how long is this going to take? So you'd probably opt for a, a greyer engineered solution over a natural one. So I think barriers are also linked to communication and um, how alternative solutions work and what type of protection they offer and how, how they become established in time um, and how they can evolve in time. And again, Robert picked up on it, land usage. Um, it's quite difficult to very quickly change how land is used. So if you're trying to kind of restore a salt marsh, very often it's farmers' fields that are being used, but they can also be very profitable farmland. Um, and we also need, well, we need food. And, and so it's not easy to just very quickly say, we're going to change change the use of this field um, and restore it into natural habitat uh, to build up a population of birds and go and enjoy it recreationally. So just being able to change quickly, um, I think, is probably one of the big barriers. And if we think about, uh, um, Robert and Jenna mentioned, about land ownership, um, you know, you are responsible for the land that your, your house is on. If, um, if anything happens to it, no, an act of God, um, erosion, it's your problem. The only way you can get compensation is by demonstrating that somebody else has caused your problem. So, for example, and there's got very good cases in, in, um, in East Yorkshire and in, in Norfolk where um, somebody has tried to do some uh, coastal protection work 
and it's affected areas further down the coast. And then those people further down the coast have said, well, now do I have a legal claim because you have made the erosion worse in my area? If nobody else is responsible for it, then it's your problem. And so you, you, you have the situation of not only is your house going to fall in the sea, but you then have the added insult. You have to, um, you have to pay to have it demolished once it gets un, unsafe. So it's trying to break this chain of, of, of ownership. Now, dare I say it, and, and, and Robert, Robert will remember, um, a, a, a good friend, I think probably of both of us, a guy called John Pethick, in the early 1990s, he was recommending that people had to move back from some of these coasts. They had to, society had to adapt. Now, dare I say it, John used to get sort of nasty things posted through his letterbox and insulting comments in uh, uh, not only in the papers but on on walls because he was recommending this. Now here we are, um, what, getting on thirty years later, and this is what's happening. People are you no know, not only are they moving back, but councils are starting to say there will be no building within this, you know, within a particular horizon of the coast. And um, and the reality is there that that, that you can't book the book the trend. There is a, a again, there's a, a an Indian proverb um, that that's quite apt when it comes to us messing around with the coasts, uh, and it says um, if if you push Mother Nature uh, out of the door with a broom, she comes back through the window with a pitchfork, and we've got examples where we've where we have tried to. In almost try to play God, we've tried to manipulate nature, and then we realise that no, it it didn't work. Now we're, we're much better at this now. Say so we have um, be better idea of what we do to it, but I think it is looking at the repercussions of what we're doing, and now we're realising that yes, if we if we do try and modify the coast, it it does have repercussions somewhere. Um, everything we do in the environment has repercussion, and know you. You pay your money, you take your choice, sort of thing. But um, I think it's getting over that message to people, saying, you know, um, for long-term sustainability, what what can we do here? Uh, just just finishing that, Robert said about the Thames barrier. Now, of course, uh, London is always going to be protected. Um, the city of Hull, what third of a million people, that's always going to be protected. But it's whether we can protect. Um, some of these other areas, and I fully take Jenny's point that agriculture is um, um, no agricultural land. It is important. We do need it, um, e even as as helping us to combat climate change. But it's it's we, we we have to convince people that we we can't we can't protect everywhere. And as I said, we we shouldn't necessarily protect everywhere as well. So society has to come to terms with this. I, th I was going to make a comment actually about we we will always protect London and we'll always protect Hull. I suppose in the short term, yeah, I mean, in the, well, maybe over the next hundred years, it's it's an interesting question about the very long term, isn't it? So I I, I do sort of think even with our big cities, if you have ten meters of sea level rise, is London a good place to live? Um, so there are there are some interesting questions. I'm not going to answer that question, but in terms of thinking about pathways, that's that's a question I think that's worth asking.
Yeah, I, I, I think Robert. I, I think we probably you and I. I think you and I probably talked about it before on some of these places where um, I, I think they would always find the money to to defend London and and Manhattan and so on. It's places around the world like um, the 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 Sundarbans in Bangladesh where um, they they could not afford to to to. Um, modify the coast to adapt to sea level change they will move sort of thing and it, and it comes to this philosophical debate well actually it's an economic debate would we would the rich countries be able to buy their way out of this problem whereas the poorer countries wouldn't be able to but um, that's probably a topic for another another podcast <laughs> we're actually we're I'm, it's a sign of a good conversation when we run out of time but i think also what's really come out from this conversation is just how many different elements there are to coastal adaptation that it's you know i think it not i think it would be a very oversimplification to say it's about where do we put the next coastal defense and it would be a very simple it'd be a very large simplification to say it's purely about physical change or purely about societal change. In fact, what came across from everyone was that, first of all, our coasts are transforming and they have transformed and they will continue to transform. But second of all, that that's not just physically or socially or economically, it's all of the above. The environment is transforming, um, what society wants from the coast and what it's doing there transforms. And then, of course, at the heart also, the, the coast moves. And um, I don't know what... what what natural what the natural environment of the coast is like changes and so very much connected to that what came out for me in this conversation is that a key part of how we adapt to those transformations and how we in some way steal of the adapt the transformational adaptation is communicating as well as listening as well as involving the communities who occupy those coastal spaces um, although I think what came up later as well is it's not just the communities who occupy those coastal spaces. It's really a question for the, for the whole of society because of the sheer scale at which these changes occur. Um, but then equally, as well as the importance and the centrality of communities, what came out was the importance and the centrality of evidence and knowledge and knowing what changes are coming next and learning from the past to learn about the future and knowing how we can monitor those changes so that we can give people warnings of what's going to happen, both in terms of decades and centuries, as well as day to day and, and by the hour. And then I think I will be quiet in a sec and let you each reflect on, on your conclusions as well. But my final key point was really around that word sustainability. And that perhaps in the past, we took decisions in a, in a more reactionary way and our timescales were shorter and we wanted to fix the problem now. And we didn't consider as much what that means for the future and recognizing that what we choose now has implications for the future um, and very much linked to that if we don't have that long-term trajectory and sustainability mindset that's when we can get locked into concrete coasts because that does seem to be the most obvious immediate solution and it's also when we get locked into thinking oh what can we do rather than what should we do so those were my key observations from being just a passive listener in this wonderful discussion. I wonder, Jenny, I don't want to put you on the spot, but did you have some reflections to offer? Yeah, well, um, I think we're very innovative in our thinking of new solutions. Um, and I think the key thing I was thinking is it's just important that we move into the future together. And that really needs good communication, 
good understanding um, and everyone just needs to be brought into going forwards together and what we do needs to be sustainable so the next generation aren't left with problems that we've created and I think that's how we're thinking now um, so I think we're in a good place uh, let's just be continue with good ideas and keep trying to implement them where we can and break down those barriers. I think it's it's a good thing when one of our key recommendations is communication and you know this space is also about communicating this podcast so I think it's we're on the right track by the sounds of it. Um, Mike did you have further reflections to offer? Yeah that, that's, that's quite interesting. I, I mentioned earlier that there was this 10 things what we call these 10 tenets uh, that you have to get in mind in order to get a sustainable solution and and um these are all one word so there's the the environment the technology the economy the society's tolerance and demand the legal aspects the administration aspects politics culture ethics and morals and communication which we've just touched on and if you get those 10 things lined up know the ducks in a row, then we can work towards sustainable solutions. If you don't get, if there's some of those missing, uh, now you'll see there, there was 10 things of which nine relate to society. If there's any of those that are not lined up, we don't get sustainable solutions. And uh, say, so I think we know the problem. I think we've got some of the, the lessons. We've got good examples, not just in the UK, but, but worldwide. Um, uh, we just have to put them into into perspective. But as you know, the um, what is the phrase? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, we, um, we we uh, we 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 know what we want to do, um, but sometimes we create systems that stop us doing it. Okay, so a very positive concluding remark from Jenny. A slightly mixed concluding remark <laughs> from Mike. But I think again, touching on something that Robert brought up earlier, which is about how the frameworks by which we conduct and plan um, adaptations are so central to what we end up doing as well. So having a framework, say, of 10 points that we take into consideration is one way to increase our understanding of what's going to work and what's not and why it won't. Um, anyway, over to you, Robert, for your final thoughts. Well, I, I think building on what's been said, I think if we look historically, we've been very reactive and I think we've become less reactive. And I've, I've often... Sometimes when I've characterised what I'd like to see, my legacy, to be appropriately, um, appropriately proactive. In, 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 and, and, and I think that's um, something that, uh, you know, society, um, how, can, how can we look forward but not too much. I think at the, when I was younger, I was rather seduced by the notion of prediction and really being extraordinarily proactive. And I think I've come to recognise that the future is rather uncertain. So it's thinking forward an appropriate amount, I think, but recognising the future is uncertain and we won't, we don't know what our grandchildren want. Uh, and, and so, but setting up maybe a frame for them that lives that leaves them choices, which I guess is one of the, the definitions of sustainability, isn't it? That you you give forward choice, and then they can do what they want, um, rather than being sort of stuck in a particular situation. So, uh, being appropriately proactive, I think, is uh, is the thing I'd like to see happening. Brilliant! Thank you all for your contributions today. 
I feel like today we really spend everything from the local, from very specific cases, right through to the international, as well as from the past, right through to, you know, I think Robert at one point was talking about about 500,000 years in the future, thinking about the city of London. Um, yeah, so just a massive thanks to Jenny Brown, Mike Elliott and Robert Nichols for joining us today. And I hope our listeners enjoyed this podcast. This work was part of an ESRC South Coast Doctoral Training Programme Fellowship funded through the UKRI ESRC ES slash W 0061 89 slash 1.